Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 108. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Stephen. Yes, sir. You've been working on a new synthesizer design. That's right. So, what's been going on with that? Well, uh, so that's actually complete, and I'm using air quotes. Uh, that's what all, I mean. All your projects are complete air quotes. No, complete <laughs> as in, like, the circuit does everything I want it to. It just... Uh, it. The case comes in tomorrow, and I just have oh. to screw it in. That's the complete part that needs to finish. So it's like nothing more electrical engineering has to happen to this. It is done. Uh, and that you're right. That is, like, very uncharacteristic of me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll be, we'll be actually talking about the synthesizer proper in a future um, episode. But today I want to talk to you about an issue I had that was kind of interesting. Okay. So, above and beyond the synth design, I've, I've been making a MIDI to CV converter. Yep. Uh, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, that particular design is still kind of in uh, the digital realm right now, in terms of, like, my computer has the design. I haven't actually ordered it. I, I did a stopgap design in a, in a way I, that was just in, to keep me in between having, like, the monster uh, device. So... What I made was a, was a Teensy device that just PWM'd out whatever voltage I wanted because I just low-passed it effectively, mm-hmm. added a little bit of gain such that my uh, Teensy was able to spit out a 0 to 10-volt signal. I used the Teensy's like, built-in Arduino library to sniff USB and get MIDI codes, and now I can actually have my computer directly play my synth. Uh, similar to my old synth, but yep. this one is... Uh, a bit more accurate and, and it, works. Well, it runs a lot faster microcontroller. Yeah, especially because you can overclock it to 240 megahertz. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so... I, can, I, can you do that? How do you do that? It's a, it's just a build option. In oh, okay. Arduino. Yeah, you just go up to like the tools thing and just and say, select, go fast. Go faster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, like, it's already 180 megahertz. Like, yeah. you kind of have to need to overclock it in order for it to do that, but... I've done it just because whatever. Yeah. I've done it and let it run for like an hour and, and felt the, the chip on the Teensy, and it doesn't really even get that hot. But I'm, I'm not really asking much of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just like reads USB and then does something. So above and beyond it having like a PWM voltage output, I also have it um, have like turn a pin high and low. It turns a pin high when it gets a note on command, mm-hmm. and it turns a pin low when it gets the note off command. Yep. So I can... I think you use that for an envelope yep, that's for your right. la- on your last synth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I'm doing on this. And my envelope, it's supposed to receive as like a zero to ten volt signal, ten being on, but it's just a transistor base at the input, so I can send it three point three volts, mm-hmm. and that's more than enough to turn it on. So I don't even have to have special circuitry. I have the Teensy connect connected directly to that. So I get all this done, and it's like, hey, great, let's start doing some stuff with it. Let's start playing some music, and of course I go to Super Mario Brothers. Uh, and and I want to make it clear that like I'm not I haven't made this musical instrument just to play like video game MIDI <laughs> music. But the thing that's great about Super Mario Brothers is everyone knows it. You know exactly what it should sound like, and it's a pretty decent test as like a kind of like a benchmark because it's just a bunch of square waves. If you need to detect frequencies or or whatever errors, like it's just like a really it's like benchy. On a 3D printer, but for... Like, yeah, my yeah it's just a benchmark. It's a benchmark. Uh, so I started playing that, and it sounds kind of funky. Uh, it, it 
all the frequencies were on. I had it tuned right, and it played well. But like the notes were sort of not lining up very well. Mm-hmm. So uh, Super Mario Brothers had four tracks. The fourth track is just a percussion. It just does a da 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 kind of sound. So I I didn't play that. The other three are actual notes. You have a high melody, you have a mid-level melody, and then you have the bass line that goes through there. So I recorded three separate tracks, all just my computer spitting out MIDI codes Mm -hmm. and my synth playing it, and just recorded it back in. And it sounds like Mario Brothers. It sounds like what you expect, but it's a little bit off, and I couldn't figure out why. It just... The notes didn't seem to line up super well, so I started playing around with it, and the entire time... I was blaming either my circuits or my code in my Teensy. I'm like, okay, well, I've done something wrong here. And I end up spending, like, seriously, like six hours just at my desk, banging my head on the desk. I've, I rewrote my MIDI code in the Teensy four separate times, doing it four different ways. Four like, different ways, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I had, I had, like, straight up my main loop doing it. I had like case statements doing it. I had a different one where I mailboxed it and had an ISR looking at the mailbox. Uh, I'm doing it all different ways, and every single time it responds poorly and doesn't do exactly what I'm thinking. I've got my scope reading like all these points on this stuff, and it's just like driving me insane. Um, so, what I I ended up pulling my my trigger signal off. So the the one from the Teensy that goes from zero to three point three. Yeah. Uh, on a note on note off I pull that off and just have it pipeline audio out so it's not turning the notes on and off it's just shifting pitch Mm -hmm. and it's perfect it sounds exactly like Mm. it should it's just not turning the volume on and off so I'm like okay great so I'm getting the exact right codes the pitch is being sent properly across MIDI but it's not telling it to turn the notes on and off in the right time and so I, I pull out my scope and I look at the signal and it should be nice square waves getting dumped out and they're not they are square waves but they're not the right length they're mm-hmm. all over the place so i ended up creating a, another little midi track that just had four notes that just you know da 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 up in scale each one having the exact same length mm-hmm. and the exact same amount of pause in between each note so it should have a very known square wave that comes out of yeah, it yeah. and my scope should be able to trigger on something like that so i've spit that out and my scope starts freaking out like it can't see anything so i'm getting like big pulses and medium pulses and it's just completely random so uh do you know of the millis m-i-l-l-i-s command or or function yeah 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 it's it's what you normally use for um delay functions yeah, yeah. Well, it it basically just takes a timestamp. Yep. So you, the Arduino is like constantly counting milliseconds, yep. and if you call that function and uh, and assign it to a variable, it will just say like, oh, the the time in milliseconds is right now. Yep. And then later on, you can call that function again, take the difference, and you are able to time something. Yep. So I I redid my code such that when I got a note on command, I would call millis, and when I got a note off command, I'd call it again take the difference and then spit out what it was getting so every single one of my notes that i was spitting out in this like mm-hmm. little arpeggio was supposed to be 0.25 seconds and i was getting it all over the place yeah and you're spitting that out over like serial right a usb okay yeah well it's it's serial over usb okay in, in a sense so so it, so i'm getting like my, my teensy's giving me all kinds of garbage here so it was like okay i've got to try something uh, different here. I went and I downloaded just like a MIDI player. Like, you know, just one where you could load whatever MIDI and just spit out mm-hmm. data. Uh, 
and I had it play the exact same thing, and it spits the data out perfectly. Hmm. And my teensy spitting the data out perfectly, and it was showing 0.25 seconds yeah. for every single note. So all of that time, I had rewritten my code. I had looked over my circuits. I'd done all that. What it was was Reaper is terrible at MIDI. And Reaper is the software you're using. That's right. Reaper, okay. Reaper is uh, a free DAW, which is like an audio recording software. Yeah. Uh, apparently, and, and after, of course, I did some research, and this is all over the internet, Reaper sucks at spitting out MIDI on time. <laughs> and so, like, but that's the thing is we were using Reaper for the previous synth. That's right, but we weren't doing it at a fast enough rate for you to actually hear it. Ah, okay. So, uh, so I actually have um, two tracks. I have well, I have my original Super Mario Brothers track, um, where I mean, we'll, we'll put it up and you'll you'll be able to hear it. It has it just sounds like Super Mario Brothers, but it's a little bit off. And then I took a particular segment of it mm-hmm. and uh, and I slowed that down. And um, it's just like it's it's literally like two seconds, but I extended it uh, and slowed it down a lot. You can see that the notes that all should be hitting at the exact same time are shifted. Are shifted. Some okay. of them hit early, some of them hit late. It all depends on what Reaper decided to spit out yep. at that one point in time. And the worst case that in this one two second segment was point one one seven seconds off of what it should be and that's way long enough for our human to hear it it, even at the regular speed the thing is like you don't hear it as like the notes being like played differently it just the whole track sounds bad yep uh and so it was like the whole time i'm blaming myself i'm blaming my design i even got to the point where you know i'm using someone else's libraries in the teensy i'm like i have no idea what their timing looks like maybe their timing is somewhat random maybe Maybe a note on command takes longer than a note off command, and that's throwing things off. No, the entire time it was my computer <laughs> spitting it out incorrectly. <laughs> so, yeah. well, now you have a reference, like well, set up for your software. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a pain in the ass, but hey, it's great. And like, as soon as I fired it up with the other program, it's awesome. It sounds great. It yeah. plays great. And it's just like, oh my god, I spent so long doing this, but. It's so hard to diagnose crap like that. Oh yeah, because like that that was literally the last thing I was looking. Yeah, for. you you assumed. Oh, I tried. You, like, you why assumed, would it be wrong? Yeah, why would it be wrong? Yeah, and and the thing was like, it's only partially wrong. It's it's completely sending the right pitch data. The pitch data is, was perfect. Yeah, it's just it would send it sort of whenever it felt like it, <laughs> and so it was just like, oh my gosh. And I don't, from what I googled. It didn't seem like there's like a MIDI buffer or anything that I can make it go faster or make it think faster. Uh, it just seems to be like an inherent problem, hmm. and that kind of sucks because Reaper's awesome for being free. It's great for like actually recording waveforms, but I guess its MIDI engine is just needs some love. Yeah, or it's banked on you know it's it's running some kind of process that's not a high priority for MIDI. Yeah, I you know I was that like the, like I was saying with the buffer I was I was seeing if there was some kind of setting because right now I don't need the MIDI to be live. It yep. could it could think about it for minutes and then play the the MIDI code. I don't care how long it takes as long as it's perfect, perfect. every time it comes yep. out. But it's just not. <laughs> yeah. So. So that was that was yeah, and and that was on my birthday. I spent <laughs> I spent six hours doing that on my birthday. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to. I'm, 
I've said this a couple times in the past, but now that I have it all like put together, I'm going to bring the synth in with a working software uh, and and have Parker play the synth on uh, oh, on the podcast. Fun. So I guess at the end of this podcast, we'll just play the clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll play we'll play both cl- clips yeah. the the regular one and then the one that's slowed down so you can hear the notes being all jacked up. Cool. So in a similar realm, I guess, um, I've been working on those digital analog converters. Yeah. Using the PCM five one two two. I think I think I've said that number enough. I'm pretty sure that's the correct part number. Um, <laughs> I did. They're gonna change it so that it, it's what you say now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did a blind test today with these DACs. So I've been testing them. Um, you've been if you want like follow me on Twitter. Like I've been posting like waveforms I've been taking, so I'm basically sending it a one kilohertz signal, recording the output on my laptop with the line input, and then um, doing like an FFT analysis on it and mm-hmm. seeing what it comes out with. And the biggest thing I've noticed with this DAC is how much you load its output. It's crazy how much like changes what your your signal looks like. Um, I guess. I come from a digital realm, so everything is basically you know transistor input or output, and so it's like you don't really worry too much about loading. Like MOSFETs, sure you have gate capacitance, and that affects how fast you can switch stuff. But the analog realm, in terms of of impedance matching, is something that's completely different well, um, that I haven't really messed with. You don't you don't get the luxury of rules of thumb when it comes to the analog world. It's not like well, 10k is a good value, so throw yeah. it. You know, like you don't get that as much. Yeah, so so because I first sampled the output of the DAC with my scope, which has got like, you know, it's probably not this, but it's like a giga ohm input. It's really high. It's probably one to ten meg. Yeah, you probably put a, you know, off off the shelf scope on it, uh, uh, off shelf scope, uh, off shelf uh, multimeter, and it'll probably show open load. That's supposed to. Um. So I pumped the DAC straight into that, right? And I was getting a lot of um, harmonics. <laughs> you got something to share? No, 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 no. You, you got a lot of harmonics. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was Continue. getting a lot of harmonics. So it's like a one kilohertz signal, and I was getting a 2K, 3K, 5K, blah, 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 you know. You know, all your primary and secondary harmonics. And they weren't super, like, high, Compared to the primary one kilohertz signal, mm-hmm. um, but they were there, and I'm like, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. And then, person in the Slack channel suggested that I switch to, um, uh, like, plugging it in and seeing, you know, maybe it's the scope can't like, because um, it's only like a 10 bit scope at best. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it's like, okay, it's outputting 24 bit audio, and I'm probably sampling. I'm sampling it like, you know, what. 250 million samples a second, which is way over too, so I'm probably getting crazy um, um, aliasing? Uh, yeah, well, no, it's not aliasing, it's like a uh, when when you want a band, bandwidth limit, your sample I can't remember what that term is called bandwidth limiting? <laughs> well, no, there's a special term for it. Anyways, I should be bandwidth limiting. And so I did that and it cleaned it up a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm like, okay, let's try the the, the input on my, my laptop. And so um, I got like a really fancy laptop that's got like, f- it's got microphone and line in mm. on it. So at first I plugged it into the microphone and it was like, 
it like killed everything outside of the one kilohertz on the spectrum. Hmm. So it was only the one kilohertz sig- signal. And I'm like, that's weird. It's completely different. And so and then I plugged into line in, and then some of those harmonics came back. And then I started doing some Googling and like, oh, well, pr- I bet you that microphone input is, it's supposed to be really low impedance because a microphone doesn't have a really big signal. And then the scope has a ginormous input impedance, and then the line in is somewhere in the middle, which makes sense for that result. So I was using the line input on my uh, on my uh, laptop for most of the recording because that's what it's supposed to be used for. It's a line level out DAC that goes into an amplifier. Okay. And so we did that. That was the how I recorded most of the tests. And what I re- found out was the most expensive DAC that's got the film caps, its um, harmonics were suppressed the most, but it had the most amount of low-range fill on, like, a one kilohertz signal. Okay. So when you did an FFT, you had more, I mean, it's, it was about 5 dB difference on the low end. Of, so, like, extra stuff? Just extra fill. Okay, yeah. They, they usually call that IMD, intermodulation yeah. distortion. Yeah. Which is basically, well, frequencies beneath your fundamental yep. that are being amplified. Yeah. Yeah, so for some reason, the film caps were adding some IMD. In yeah. I, I wish I, ha- I printed off the um, the charts for you to see. Yeah. But, yeah, so if you can imagine. But it was noticeable. Yeah, yeah. So it was like this. And then there's some harmonics he, down there. He's drawn on a. Yeah. He's drawn his. Uh, it was very so, accurate. FFT. So that section right there. Right. Yeah. I'll I'll post the pictures on on the podcast. That section right there was larger. On on the um. So, so yeah. He, film caps. You're pointing to the low frequency. Yeah. End. Low frequency now, underneath the primary. One one thing to be careful or of. Fundamental. And, and, uh, and you know you were doing one kilohertz, so this wouldn't matter. But like if you're doing like. 10 hertz and doing a FFT on it, yeah. it can look really funky if you don't have, if you're not doing the right FFT because the the zero or the DC component in an FFT yep. can show up as infinity. Yep. So it can skew the, the graph depending on how tight the graph is yeah. and how many points you're doing on yeah, it. Yeah, so I, yeah, I wasn't trying to do a like absolute measurements. I was just like, if I set this all up and just change the DAC out, right, what, what am I do? seeing? Yeah. Things go up, things go things down. down. That's yeah. all I really cared about. Exactly, right. And, like, by how much. So, oh, I noticed the film cap ones had more of this bottom fill, but they suppressed the primary and secondary harmonics of the of the fundamental frequency better. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, I wonder if that has to do anything with them potentially picking up more broadband noise, and that's just, like, filling up. Maybe. It, that might be... They might be better at just like having the proper harmonics go through, but it's also giving you a lot of other crap with yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Um, and then I did a sweep, so I sent that twenty hertz to twenty kilohertz signal. Yeah, and then I did like a ten second segment of that and captured it at ten seconds, and then ran an FFT. And the all the DACs, no matter what the loadout was, had the same flat response. The same, you know, slightly downward slope you would normally see for a DAC. Yeah. Um, so as the frequency goes up, its response goes down. It's just normal. Um, but the film cap outputs were had a higher dB response. It was still the same flatness. So the so all the all the graphs were parallel, except that if you the film cap outputs and the um, 
the their absolute audio, amplitude was just slightly higher. Yeah, the absolute amplitude was higher, but like the audio grade resistors and stuff, it was just slightly higher by like five dB over the entire range. Sure. Um, sure. And they both started to get distorted at like, you know, twelve kilohertz or whatever, slightly and out to. It's it, actually it interesting. Fuzzy. Yeah, once that once that uh, DAC hits like seventeen or eighteen kilohertz, it just like plummets like a rock. Oh yeah, there's some kind of internal uh, pole that's bringing it down. Yeah. Now the one thing to to be to consider in this case is you have one of each of those devices. Uh, that's so true. The tolerance on those things that's true. might account for the gain shift. Yeah. And so, going back to what I was talking about earlier, so this morning we did a blind test. And so, I I built these two boxes. Ooh. And so... You, I, yeah. we, we use, we use uh, priority mailboxes for a lot of experiments <laughs> here on the map. <laughs> so, because this is what we just had. And so... Can I do a, a, a test on this? I haven't seen this. Yeah. Um, if you plug it in and plug your headphones in... Um, it'll play a Dire Straits song. Oh, nice! Is it playing right now? Well, you got to plug it in. Oh, There's okay. I see. I, I will let me let me fire up my laptop. I'm I want to wait. Which Dire Straits song? Um, I don't remember. Because that would be amazing. Sultans of Swing would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. So yeah, you can. I I unhooked your headphones so you can bring it over. Um, and so I set up the boxes where they look mostly identical on the outside. And taped them shut, and then I put I had the 3.5 millimeter audio jack um, on the outside, so you can swap your headphones back and forth. And so it was as close to a AB you know blind test as I can possibly do. And so I had 15 people listen to it. This is the first time, Stephen. It takes a while for it to boot up. You got an operating system for it to boot up, and then it should start playing. Okay. Well, I I am now. Fully plugged in and just waiting for some Dire Straits to... Uh, Start playing. Yeah, to uh, um, serenade me. Oh, uh, there we go. <laughs> this is not Sultan's a Swing. <laughs> Cheers, Parker. Mm. And that's so, actually, that's a, that's a decent sounding deck. Yeah. And wait, so is the deck driving these headphones direct? Correct. That's that's a fairly decent volume for that little chip and, to dump in. And that's headphones. actually only at so because of that offset and the response, I actually dialed the good DAC down the five dB by just empirically like just like moving it down and then remeasuring it until the graphs lined up. Yeah. And so when you swap the headphone jack, one doesn't sound louder than the other because then, you know. People, well, at the first test I did, I didn't do that. And people just said, the louder DAC sounds better. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so then I... <laughs> Steven's posing for a picture. Um, so I dialed, I dialed the volume down so they both match. And we ran an A-B test. So I basically I set them up at my desk and just had people come over and they put the headphones on and whatever and they told me if the left one or the right one was correct. Two or three. What? I see two. Uh, is there a third one? No. no. I only only had SD cards to run two PIs at the same time. Ah, okay, okay. So I picked the most expensive deck and the cheapest deck. Oh, so wait, I can blind test to see if yeah. I, could, I can find which yeah. one is which? Yes. I'm gonna get it wrong. Do you know which one is which? Uh, not anymore. You have number one written on there. I don't remember what that means. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, let me see here. I'm listening to one right now, and it sounds great. I mean, zero complaints whatsoever. 
We can open up the box and see which one's which. Wait, wait, wait. This is this is this makes for excellent podcast material where I'm trying to be quiet here and listening <laughs> to things, and I'm sure our 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 listeners and the thing love is, that. and we can't even record this because this is copyrighted, you know, music. Well, as long as we did less than three seconds. Uh, and did not say which band it is, which it is not Dire Straits. <laughs> <laughs> All right, give me a second. Uh, Parker, enter- entertain people. Okay, so the results of this test is people liked the cheaper deck. Well, we don't know why. Oh, we do know why, Iris. Is, um, so I, some of them told me like their notes. And the cheaper deck, they liked because it sounded uh cleaner and the other the people who picked the other DAC liked it because it sounded more bassy I have a preference okay I this this one right here has a slightly better bass response and I'm not trying to get wanky on you the kick drum uh, is a little bit punchier and a little bit deeper on this one so open that one up yeah let's open it up and let's see yeah because like it could be the shitty one I think that one is actually which actually has a... You're the only person that would have said that has a better bass response. Everyone else said the other one? Yes. For bass. For bass. This one has a cleaner tone. And when you look at the frequency analysis for the one kilohertz signal, just pull the tape off the red board and then read what the name says. It should say like Rev 1A or C. C. So that's the cheap one. Rev, rev so, cheap. Hey, yeah. the, the cheap one sounds great. Yeah, and so, but when you look, and the thing is, what people are saying about it, you're the only one that said that it was bassier. That one is. It's uh, it's punchier. Okay, so people were saying the the most ex- more expensive one with the film caps had more bass. Interesting. Okay, but and when you look at the frequency analysis of like a one kilohertz signal, it has more in the bass region filled, hmm. which. Maybe that's what people are hearing. Who who knows? But the thing is, out of fifteen people, eleven picked the cheaper DAC. Four picked the more expensive one. Go and you were number sixteen, and so you picked the. Well, okay. When one. you say the cheaper DAC, it's the exact same DAC. It's just cheaper components. Like components on for the passives. Right. So it, the cheaper DAC has, uh, you know, house parts for fil- for bypass caps, and it has like. I think we talked about this a couple podcasts ago. It has a, um, it has an N- N0G um, caps in the audio stream. N-P-O-C-O-G. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has just run-of-the-mill thick film caps. Uh, resistors. Well, they were both incredibly similar. And, yes. like, if, if, if you put either one of those in front of some person at one at a time, they would probably just be like, well, this sounds fine. Yes. But... Uh, an A to B comparison, like I said, the kick drum sounded like it it hit a little bit like I hate audio terms, but fuller. It seemed like it just like punched faster and was less subdued. So, and the only other thing is that might be the harmonics that those ceramic caps let through that the film caps are suppressing. You know, you'd be surprised. Like a lot of times, like. A laser perfect frequency response sounds like butt, you know? Uh, a lot of times you want something that has a little bit of, you know, garbage in it uh, to make it have some character, to make it have something that makes it unique. Yeah. So that that was interesting. That's cool. Um, and I really like that it 
I, I like it turned out that way because that means I that this thing's cheaper. <laughs> yeah, and probably actually significantly cheaper. In low volumes, it's a lot cheaper, like twenty bucks cheaper. Mm-hmm. In high volume, it's about five bucks cheaper. Gotcha. But you know, five bucks over five hundred units. Eh. You know, and the thing is, like, of course, this was not like an ultimately scientific. No, no, no. Test like they were inside U.S. priority mailboxes. Right, and and on t- <laughs> right. And on top of this, like, we're playing it through headphones. Normally, this, these are going to be played through speakers, which those will have huge impedance shifts and yep. all kinds of, like, well, usually this really actually, hard pressed to tell the difference. Well, usually this goes into a amplifier and then to your headphones. Right. And so that, those headphones are probably, you know, 8 ohm. And so it's going to be a higher impedance than the microphone input, but it's not as high as line in. And so I bet you those headphones well, the are... The headphones are easily going to be the lowest, uh, low, I mean, the, the heaviest load on that, for sure. Oh, even more than a microphone input? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, so 8 ohms versus so microphone actually, input's going to be... I wonder if I, put the, um, if, I captu- if I put those headphones in and then captured that on the, the um, scope, and so the scope doesn't have any influence since it's such high impedance, I wonder what that looks like. I wonder if it cuts all the... The, the low-end crap? Well, not all the low-end crap. I wonder if it cuts all those um, uh, harmonics out. Well, I mean, the thing is, if this if this DAC is designed to be pumped into an amplifier, which is what it sounds like, yep. I mean, its output is probably going to be seeing an input impedance of like a mega-ohm, if not more. Uh, I mean, some, some preamps have like, or amplifiers have like a 10K input, but even a 10K input is orders of magnitude above mm-hmm. what a headphone is going to pre- present to it. Yeah. So headphones are probably worst case scenario for this kind of thing yeah. um, in terms of it sounding bad, which it doesn't. So anything higher than this, it'll probably sound just great. Yeah. So, yeah, the ceramic caps, they're not the cheapest ceramic caps out there, but they're... A couple orders of magnitude cheaper than the foam caps. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So. But but you did kind of, in a way, you know, if you neglect the idea that there's tolerance shifting, you did kind of show that film caps do something. Yes, they do. It might not be good, but they yeah. do something. Yeah, and that's the thing is um, I'm going to write up an article because I, I did an article on, like, using the MacFed platform to, like, price out your production crap with this. Uh-huh. That's yeah. why I have three different versions is... You know, go read that article. It explains it way better than I can in like 30 seconds on the podcast. But I'm going to do a follow-up article with all this test data. And then I'm going to do another article on like a pseudo production run. Like how would we test these in at in production and stuff. Ah. So. Were you going to start adding film caps to the house parts? No. Yeah, probably not. No. Right? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, so let's go on to the RFO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a couple weeks old, but we haven't been able to get to it. It's the uh, discrete Pong project goes big. Adds a player. This is absolutely incredible. So this is a, um, a, um, I don't know the person's name. So person A. (laughs) uh, This this was a Hackaday uh, article that came out. Yeah. So person A has got a thread on the EEV blog where he's been, or the guy's been like, Building these crazy transistor contraptions. Yeah, is that a? That'd be the title of this podcast. 
Tra- crazy transistor contraptions? Yeah, that one's good. Say that real fast. Really fast. <laughs> um, so, guy or player A or... Once my computer fires up, I'll try to find his name just so we can give him the honor <laughs> of his name. If it's a he. Oh, the, you're right. You're, I apologize. Yeah. That, but yeah. It may not be a he. Yeah. So, Although I read the article and I'm pretty sure it's a he. <laughs> so the Hackaday article, um, last year, this person had a, another project. It was a Pong-like transistor project, but it was only like one player and you played against, I, guess, I think, a wall. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there was also some like uh, housekeeping stuff that wasn't in in his uh that that project like i think the scorekeeping was a little funky the mm-hmm. way the way they did it so he's kind of updated it now yeah so the um so yeah the games he updated it but it's how he built it because i've seen transistor pong machines before um I've, I've been to a couple like you know video game conferences and usually someone's got one of the really old machines that's been based off the brown box by ralph i think that's his name Ralph His Burr. name is just Ralph. I think it's Ralph Burr. <laughs> um, could be misremembering that, though. But it's called the Brown Box, and it was a um, transistor-based video game console built in the late 60s, if I recall. I actually have the schematic laying around somewhere. I've always wanted to build it, and then I looked at the transistors, and I'm like, huh, no. that is way out of my wheelhouse because those transistors don't exist anymore. And so you have to convert it to modern equivalents right and then change all the biasing and all that stuff to make it work right but this guy's already done that stuff for us yeah but again that's how he built it and it's a like two foot by one foot solid clad of fr4 that he manhattan style built everything and it's all like perfectly wired and whoo so so if if you haven't seen Manhattan style before, go to Google and type in Manhattan style circuit or Manhattan style transistor or whatever. Not Manhattan, not Manhattan style drink. What is a Manhattan drink? It, whiskey. Is, is it whiskey? Yeah. It's whiskey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you go look up that and get one of those and then go look at this Manhattan style <laughs> because you need a drink to like understand it. <laughs> Uh, no, so in Manhattan style, it's actually like the majority of the players that use that are kind of like the RF and the the high frequency dudes, um, because what it is, you 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 have a copper clad base that's all circuit. ground. That's all ground, and what you do is you cut up basically little squares of copper and glue them wherever you need to on top of this base, such that if you ever need to attach to ground, the whole board is ground you just take a leg of whatever component you have and just solder it directly to the base but all the interconnections between components that aren't ground are just floating in space they're floating above this like ground level thing so i guess it's manhattan because it's like skyscraper or whatever you're building vertically build vertical yeah uh and and a lot of times you'll see like you know the guys who do like crazy rf frequency whatever stuff uh you know when they need to make like a a 50 pole you know brick wall filter for whatever radio station they're dealing with they'll just do it manhattan style and shove it in a box and they're not the most exciting circuits ever because it's just like okay great you made a filter and that's that's fantastic for what you do but it's just like not cool to look at but this guy's is immaculate it was art oh oh absolutely you could could hang this on well for sure and the fact that like okay so what's what's so cool about it is like when you look at a circuit 
if you don't know much about electronics, if you look at a circuit, you can kind of get the idea that these little black bug-looking things, there's something going on inside. You don't get to see what that is, but like, okay, those are chips. Ooh, they do something, you know, <laughs> something like that. His doesn't have chips, so it's even more like, ooh, like, how does it do it? It's super cool. I love it. Yeah, it uses a bunch of flip-flops and... yeah. Yeah, but it uses a bunch of flip flops, but it shows on a screen like intelligible data, you know, intelligible oh, yeah, things, yeah. and that's just super. Um, cool. There's a really cool vid- YouTube video that shows how the original um, brown box yeah. worked, and that's pretty similar how this works. Uh, so I have, have to, to find that. Vi- I have to find that video. Oh, I need to go watch that. Yeah, um, I wish I knew what. Remember like, what I it was. need to go get a six pack of beer and a pizza on the way home and go watch. That how video. pong works it's very interesting because <laughs> the first couple pong units in like atar- the uh arcades that's how they worked really yeah weren't, weren't the first couple i could be way wrong here but weren't the first couple pong units like you build it yourself mm, or did you just buy them straight no no because atari had the patent oh okay okay i thought there or was copyright like, i would say and i mean when was the first like build it yourself pong because those have been around for a long time i don't know hmm but the um, the interesting thing is uh, on the Atari end was Pong was a big deal, and the first it was all discrete stuff, and then the big deal was when they actually came out with a Pong on chip or a puck. <laughs> I don't know if anyone actually in the industry called it that, but I like a it. Puck, I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's like when you go from the the schematics between the old transistor based ones to the puck. It's like the POC has like a couple resist has this big rectangle that's whatever the part number was written on it and like a couple resistors and like the inputs and like and it's like and it drives the display. Wow. And, and then so, like so that one game was popular enough to drive that deep of integration into a single chip. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's crazy. Yeah. What's even crazier is the some of the old video games um like the Odyssey uh video game consoles like the Odyssey where yeah your cartridges didn't have software on it it changed the jumpers it was just a jumper cart and so when you plugged it in it just changed how the circuitry was wired up like an fpga (laughs) and so it would play a different game so if you knew what you were doing you could just jumper it yourself yeah 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 i mean i'm sure that was pirating back then i'm (laughs) (laughs) that 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 sort of feels like hacking in a way that that feels like a real time to hack yeah so like (laughs) What would be awesome is, like, what is the most integrated you could possibly get Pong? Like, could you get Pong to just be, like, a chip with just power into it, no passive? Like, how far can the rabbit hole go, you know? I mean, you could probably do that on, like, an AT Tiny now, which needs probably. which needs a bypass cap and power. Well, the thing problem is getting the output out. And so how are you going to output? You can probably... There's probably a project out there to get AT Tiny to output composite over one pin. Yeah, that it probably p- consumes a lot of its processing power. Yeah, but I mean it's Pong. Yeah. Um, I wonder I if mean, that exists. you could just do it all on FPGA. Look it up, right? AT Tiny composite output. Okay. I wonder if that How exists. How about AT Tiny Pong? I'll look that up too. Scanning. That's got to exist. Pong. It's like it's like that Doom website. Oh, yeah, everything runs Doom or, yeah. or whatever. Doom on everything. Yeah. Yeah. I would not be surprised if someone has an Arduino that runs Doom. It would not even supply. Maybe surprise. one of the higher-end ones that are 32-bit. 
they actually run an OS. Man, this is very interesting for our listeners. So I'm going to go on to uh, the stealth winners of the new iPhone X. Because, you know, they had to skip the ni- iPhone 9. Right, yeah. Because reasons. Well, Windows did the same thing. I mean, it's, it's even, like, was it the... Xbox One X. It's like, what the hell are they thinking naming these things? Well, okay, so Windows went mm-hmm. to Windows 8. And then... And they did, like, they did such a disservice to their people that they're like, we're going to, like, upgrade twice <laughs> just to say I'm sorry for 8. <laughs> okay. So, uh, the stealth winners are... These are kind of like... People have done teardowns of the iPhone X already. Um, but this is from electronicdesign.com, where they kind of they when I don't know if they did the tear down, but they were going into more of like the unsung heroes of like what makes the iPhone X possible. Um, and the craziest thing is, I think the craziest thing is how they are doing the stack up inside this PCB now, inside this phone now. And so I printed off a, a picture. And I'll have a link to the picture in our description. I'm going to pause you for just one quick second okay. to just take one step back and say, yep. Hackaday already has an article about a guy with an AT Tiny 85, the small 8-pin guy that spits out composite video and can display text on a screen. So it can do Pong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just maybe not at full speed. <laughs> not at full speed. <laughs> okay. So forward on to Apple. Yeah, yeah. So the PCB sandwich is, so they have two main boards in there, like most cell phones. Okay. But mo- most cell phones that I've taken apart, they have a like a really high density connector on both ends, and then you, they click together. Mm-hmm. A board to board, what do they call it? Mezzanine. Yep, mezzanine connector. Uh, connector. Well, the problem with those is they still need thickness to work. Okay, because it's a connector and you have stuff there. Well, Apple decided to basically make a via pass through PCB. And so, if you look at this, this slice through, you have this top board, and then this bottom board, and then on the edges, you see these vias that go all the way through. So, wait, this, these are vias that extend from board to board? Well, no, because it, it goes from one board into another board into the other board. So, there's three boards. Yeah, and so it's made out of, like, an a, like thicker FR4, and that's just vias all the way around. So they're making a PCB into a mezzanine connector. Yes, but it's thinner than a normal mezzanine connector. So how is it manufactured? Is it soldered together? Yeah, whole thing. The, both two boards are soldered together. So, okay, so they put the bottom board that already has components All, on, on it. On both sides, like the 12-layer board that's already got everything on it. Right, and, and then they on top of that, they put small FR4 connector boards with just vias. Yes. Then they stack another board yes. on top of that. That's a 12-layer board with a bunch of parts on it, yes. And then run it through an oven. Yes. I guess they're filling the vias with with paste. paste yeah, and then just oh my god, and they're probably a- and they're probably vapor reflowing it. Is I can why well, that can think is of. insane. Yeah, um, yeah, because like okay, so this this cross section image that that you have here, first of all, you can see the boards and see that there's like a gazillion layers, <laughs> layers <inside>. yeah, <laughs> and then these like big old wads on the side, which I guess it's called via frames. Yeah, via frame, via frame. Okay, so that's the that's the connector that yeah. Goes so in between. I, I didn't print off the top view. But they, they, there's some guys that desoldered the top board. Yeah. And, yeah, it's a frame that goes all the way around the perimeter, about three vias wide, that is just filled with vias that does the pass-through. You, you know what's... Okay, so here's the, the thing that about Apple that's kind of interesting. They're big enough, 
as a company and that one product, the iPhone, is big enough by itself to invent an entire new technology that other people may never use. So they're like, also it's pushing a technology only for them. So they're pushing <laughs> another technology in how the PCBs are manufactured now too. Ah, how's called, that? Called MSAP or MicroSAP. What's that? Well, it's not micro, I guess. It's modified semi-additive process for PCB assembly. Okay, micro. So you can like change parts of a PCB no, in a small well, area. Well, it's semi-additive, but a modified whatever that means. Anyways, what MSAP is. So for normal PCB manufacturing, you have thick copper. Mm-hmm. You drill all your holes, and then you plate it. So you plate the 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 vias, and then you put a mask over it. And then etch the copper away. Mm-hmm. And the problem with doing that is you get your traces look like trapezoids, where the top of the trace is thinner than the bottom of the trace. The the technical term for that is anisotropic. Sure. Yeah. I don't think I can pronounce that. That, that, that <laughs> that's that's the that's the word that they use for when you're when you're etching um, dies inside of chips like if you want the gate of a, of a um, transistor to be really straight mm-hmm. that's isotropic as it's straight up and down but it's never isotropic it's always anisotropic it always has some kind of angle to it well and it's the same thing with copper yeah. etching yeah so what they're doing now is doing a semi-additive process which is a lot like building semiconductors which is an additive process too you're building on top of this this you're silicon. growing crystals you, well you grow the crystal but then you you build crystals and and embed metal and stuff like that on top so what they're doing now is you start out with the really thin copper do your drills plate it whatever and then you put a um a uh, mask down and then you plate that and that builds the thickness of your traces up where there's no mask. And then you take the mask off. And so mm. now your traces are more the more parallel up and down. So in okay, so instead of chemically etching away copper, you're chemically adding copper to the the opposite. Well, of electrical electrolytic plating. Process. Yeah, plating. Yeah, plating, which is yeah, it's chemical. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so okay, so they're just doing it in reverse, which works fine. Yeah, but it lets you get away with thinner traces uh, and sticking the traces closer because now the base is the same width as your top, or really close, and so you can move them closer, and you can get down to 0.4 mils trace width, trace width, and trace like separation. Oh my god! Yeah, you're kidding. Me. That's crazy, isn't That's it? Because like, we play in like five mil, five mil world. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, the, the, the standard at Macrofeb is 6.6, six, isn't it? 5.5. Five, 5.5? Five. Five, five? Should That's be. That's the standard? Should be. Uh, yeah, it probably is. Yeah, uh, yeah but, but I mean, in general, the 5.6 world is like... Normal. That's normal. Yeah, anything less than that, you start to pay extra price. Yeah. But, and, and, and to be honest, let's, let's, let's lay it all out right here. That's still pretty damn small. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's small. Like, yeah, that's small, but 0.4 mil is like... You know, many thousand pin BGA kind of yep. escaping. So that's the other unsung hero of the of the iPhone internals. Wow. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to assume that there's like some crazy stuff going on in under the hood in that kind of stuff. But oh yeah, like the the, the article talks about like why they switched um, the their MEMS manufacturer for their accelerometer and and basically their IMU. Mm-hmm. And it's because like. I think it was Bolsch is the the new manufacturer for them. 
and they were able to like make theirs thinner by like point three millimeters. I, that, I, it matters. That's enough. Yeah, it's enough to put a slightly bigger battery in. Oh, in in those phones, like every inch of space is consumed. Everything's custom too. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, I, it actually kind of makes sense that PCBs eventually make their way to the same sort of technology that ICs do. Yeah. Where instead of like, it, effectively the way you do ICs is sort of the way you do CNCing. You start with something bigger and you chop away everything you don't want. Yep. But with ICs, you start with like almost nothing and then make what you want from that. And that makes sense. But wow, cool. And they yep. have enough money to drive it. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, okay, so the next topic, last topic for today is this was on. I'm, I think I'm going to start doing this more is pulling more topics. I find questions on like the ECE Reddit subreddit and what we get in the Slack channel and stuff because this one's really good. Is uh, someone asked, "Is coding required for electrical engineering?" Ooh. And he he asked because he's a student, probably in high school, going to college, and he's not very good at. Java, because that's what, for some reason, they want you to learn in oh, college. Don't learn Java. That's what, like, when you learn, um, at, at least at UT, you learn, like, assembly and C, and the, quote, high-level language you learned was Java, because for, like, data systems or something. Shoot, the highest level you should learn is Python. Like, that's super useful. Yeah, it's very in, useful. In industry. Um, so, I was thinking about making this as a general question is... Is coding required for engineering for electrical engineering just like every electrical engineer should know? Um, and like, I guess like go into like also like how useful it is. Even if like you only do hardware, like how useful is knowing how to code? You know. Okay. So before we go way into that, I think we should invite as many people to get onto our Slack channel because uh, I would love to see this conversation. Yeah, oh yeah, go on to the Slack channel. Uh, so, for those of you who don't know, we have a Slack channel here at Macrofab uh, where you can go and and Parker and I are are on it, and other people here at Macrofab. And if you just want to come and shoot the shit and just talk about whatever, it's there. Yep. Um, I'm so, usually on until I go to bed. Basically. Oh yeah, yeah. No, so. Parker's on all the damn time. <laughs> so so um, yeah, come on there. And this is this is not a self promotion, but I because. Personally, I think this this topic is actually really cool, yeah. and I think Slack would be a great place to go to that. So, uh, what's what's the method to get to this? Like, I don't know it off the there's top. There's a of my link head. in the podcast. Okay, yeah, there's a, okay, there's a link, uh, in and it's podcast. usually when we tweet about it, it's there too. So if if you if you troll the website, then you'll find uh, you'll find the Slack <laughs> link. Okay, regardless. So he, here's my my quick thoughts on this. And when I have done job searches um, in the past, um, one thing I have noticed is that. Things have changed significantly since I, even since I left college, which was less than a decade ago, but almost a decade ago. Um, When I left college, they didn't seem to require it as much, but now it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it will be like, okay, you know, when you go see like a, a job posting, it will say like, you know, must have fundamentals of in this engineering, must be, have analog circuit design, blah, blah, blah. But also, like, must have experience with C slash C++ or Python or whatever. And uh, that's just so much more uh, relevant to, yeah. to today. So if you are just like an analog circuit guy, there's people who will want you. But they're really speci- specific now and special. Yeah. Now. Well, even I was even thinking about, like, what would be... 
an electrical engineer that would never have to do programming, you're like, oh yeah, an analog guy, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, what about simulation? I, I guess that's and if you like had a to, really high level of programming. Well, yeah. Well, when you have to build your own like models for a device that doesn't have a model, you yeah, have you, to spice models. Yeah, you have yeah, to build yeah. your own spice model, which is it's scripting, but it's yep. still a that's still programming. Right. Um, and then when you go a little farther, it's like okay, Python is kind of like a scripting language. It's a little. It's people consider it a proper programming language, um, but it's you can view it as a scripting language because it can be depending yeah, on how yeah, you yeah. use it and yeah i would say python is like like the most useful thing just from like data management because that's what an engineer is is knowing how to look at data yeah no matter yeah, what it sure. is is how to look at data and how to implement what you need to implement be- based on that data and knowing a scripting language or something that can like matlab MATLAB is amazing if you can afford a license. Yeah, right. <laughs> and if you're in or college... Even, or even Maple, if you, if you yeah. know Maple. Or yeah. Mathematica and, or whatever they call it. Yeah, because when you're in college, you, you usually get MATLAB for free. Right. And that is such a powerful tool to basically help you break down data and look for trends and and and, Ma- and MATLAB is totally C for dummies. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's that's exactly what it is. Yep. It's, in fact, MATLAB is like Arduino for like... You know that world, that yep. math world, because it just it already has like. In fact, one of the functions I used all the time was um, l- uh, linear space. It's L I N S P whatever. I can't remember what it is, but like that one function, you just plug it in, and it would just create automatically an array of whatever you you whatever you know Parameters arguments you gave it. You gave it. Uh, and and that one was like etched into my memory because like college was all about doing. MATLAB and that function. Array main, uh, not array. Manipulation. Um, not, not array, though. Matrix yeah, manipulation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Linear math and... Oh, oh. <laughs> that stuff. I so, do not miss that class. <laughs> well, okay, so, so actually, here's what I would say is maybe as a sort of like a minimum, maybe it's not the best, or I shouldn't say the best, but I guess what I'm, I'm going at here is um, you should be able to at least look at code and understand what it's doing. Maybe mm-hmm. you are not capable of writing that code without like extra thought. But like, if somebody has code up on their page and is like, "Hey, can you help me like look at this?" You could at least follow it. Yeah, and which going, is sort of like speaking a language. Like you can read it, but you can't speak it. It's yeah. they're sort of the same thing. And I would go. Let's say if you're a layout engineer, so mm-hmm. you, all you do is lay boards out. Okay, you're like, "Oh, I never had to," you know, you know, no code. Well. Most EDA tools support a scripting language. Right. And if you have a function that you want to write, like a something that you do all the time, well, instead of spending eight hours to do it, spend two hours to write a script and then hit enter. And, and have it just chug it out. I write a lot of Eagle scripts. Right. That just, like, make my life easier. Like, one I have is changing the how a schematic looks to how I want it to look. It's it's very similar on the development side. They have like they have their old um, tab versus double space. Like that's going to make people go crazy in, in Slack. Um, <laughs> I'm a tab guy, by the way. So Steven's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I, I get it. It just doesn't affect me. <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a script. I have a couple scripts in Eagle that I run whenever I load up someone's board that changes the colors how I want it to look and changes like all the fonts so it looks exactly how I want it to look. So I can easily read it. 
Um, and there's a bunch of scripts. Um, let's see, what else is there? Oh, you wrote a script for the 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 Mega Mondo resistor. Oh yeah, I had place one. All forty thousand. Yeah, I had a script that I wrote that just just procedurally went out and did forty thousand resistors and connected all the nets and actually it automatically routed the board. <laughs> right, right, right. Because that one was like a good candidate for that. Yes. Well, I only had to do the same thing forty thousand times in a row. So. Right. So, is coding required for electrical engineering? I think boil it down. Both of us are saying yes. Yeah. I, and I can't. And I tried today, like thinking of like, is there something that you could do that wouldn't require you to code? And sure, it's going. Your life will be easier if you do, though. Well, okay. and you don't have to be a. The thing is, there's a difference between knowing how to code and being a developer. You don't have to be able to build apps or whatever, but. It's actually going back to being able to read code. Because what if you get, if you're a board layout guy or drawing out schematics and someone hands you firmware and says, we need this firmware to work. Well, if you don't know how to read that, how are you going to wire that microcontroller up to know what pins go to what pieces of hardware? Right. So like, oh, this port goes to our motor controller and this one's direction, this one's pulse, and this one is uh, fault. Yeah, right, right. Uh, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you rock solid uh, industry experience here. Uh, this actually happened to me at my very first job. Um, I was a uh, uh, basically a manufacturing engineer. I- in effect, it was like if if a product went down on the manufacturing floor, my phone would ring and they'd be like, "Come help us!" And uh, and so like one of the big products went down on the floor and there was a bunch of shit going down and they were like, "Hey, our testing software doesn't work anymore." It was written like a decade ago in Visual Basic five, and I have no clue how to read Visual Basic, but I've generally been able to read C and a handful of other things, and so like. Sure, it, it, I, maybe I wasn't jumping on it as quickly as possible, but I was able to kind of, kind of sift through the code and see that, hey, there was a function that was kind of crapping its pants when they were asking it to do a certain thing. Even though I've never even seen Visual Basic before, I got the gist, and I mm-hmm. saw what it was doing, and I was able to fix it. And, you know, it's nice to be the hero in that kind of situation when the when the big product goes down and you fix it. But, like, I don't like programming, but... I can generally read it and that helped, you <laughs> yeah. know, that like I, I didn't throw my hands up in the air. So like, that's why I'm saying like just at a bare minimum, read it. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So that will be the MacFab engineering podcast. We are your host, Parker Dillon and Stephen Craig. I'm so good at that. Aren't You're I? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we're done with this episode. Parker, yeah. has, <laughs> Parker has just decided that we're done with this episode. Yep. So thank you for listening. Yes. See you next time, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show, even though I might have cut it a little soon. Depends on what Steven thinks. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic that you want Steven and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. Uh, Hopefully we uh, spurred or rustled some jimmies and we get some people talking about our two hardware people talking about software. So, yeah, later.